Hello, everybody. Welcome to Unspoken Matters. I'm your host, Craig Irving. Let's get started. Hello, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. We will be discussing a topic this evening that is very near and dear to my heart, single mothers raising sons. I'm joined by my guest, Karenette Dunn, who is also a single mother of two young men. Hey, Karenette, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Truly, it's, it's truly an honor to be able to do this podcast with you, especially for the reason that you're doing it to other your own mom. I'm just beyond happy to share my story. Uh, and I hope, you know, your viewers will actually benefit from it as well. Hey, before we dive in, I want to come clean about something. I have had so much stress about having this conversation and I've had stress about having the conversation because I wanted to ensure that my words honored the women and the mothers who've had to raise boys to men. And regardless if they feel as if they have done a good job or raised them successfully or not, I think the mere fact that they have accepted the challenge to raise these individuals alone deserves honor and respect within itself. Because I know that even in a two-parent home, it's difficult raising kids. And secondly, I wanted this conversation to be a nod to my mother, who also had to not only raise me alone, but also had to raise my two brothers. So it was very important to me that I had the right conversation and that my conversation honored these individuals. You know, when I asked you to have this discussion, Karenette, I explained to you that you reminded me so much of my mother, especially your strength. And not to mention that you actually have a son that has my mother's name, Frankie. Isn't that correct? That is correct. That is my firstborn child. Well, before everyone hears your accent and later start texting me and emailing saying, where's Karenette from? Hey, tell, tell everybody a little bit about your background and where you're from. And also tell us a little bit about your boys. And then we'll get started on your journey into raising these young men. Well... I was born in Jamaica, born and raised there, and spent most of my early uh, childhood years there. I went through high school, completed high school, before leaving to migrate to the United States to be with my bio biological mother. I spent most of my time being raised by my grandparents. So I knew that in time that I would actually end up being um, moving to the New York, exactly, to be with my mother. So... You know, that was um, an expectation and it was sort of, I, I looked at it as um, an opportunity, you know, to further my education, also to be in a different country and just, you know, enjoy the benefits that you've often heard that you can have from being in the United States. Now, being here, um, you know, I went to college, got married, and for whatever reasons, marriages, you know, work out, but I had two children two boys to be exact, and I've now had to figure out how I'm going to raise these two young men. My first child is Franklin. He is now 32 years old and lives in California. And Dane, being my youngest, he is 27, and he lives right here with me in New York. Okay. So you shared, I know you've shared with me the journey, you know, your journey as a single mother. Uh, a few years ago, when we actually when we first met, uh, after we had met several times, you shared with me that journey. When you first found out that you were going to become a single parent and raising two boys, hey, what's the first thing that came to your mind? 
I can't mess up their lives. Um, mm. I felt a failure at not being able to make this work. But I also knew if I wasn't happy, I wasn't sure I was going to be able to make them happy. I had so many voices going in my head, Craig. Um, my grandparents telling me, you basically bear it and deal with it because no matter what, you never get divorced. Divorce was sort of a, it was a shameful word growing up. And when you're coming from a household where you've celebrated 50 years anniversary with your grandparents, you know, going through a divorce was something that I don't think I would have been able to do it if they were still alive, to be honest with you, because there was a stigma associated with being divorced. And then right. now I have these two young lives that I can't mess up. But what was the hardest part at the beginning of that? What was the hardest part with you starting off? And what were some of your biggest fears? Where am I going to live? How am I going to mm. take care of them? What kind of life am I going to be able to provide for them? But I have to tell you, I was more sure of knowing that I wanted to be alone with them and that I didn't want to be in the situation that I was in. And I was willing to deal with whatever came our way because I felt that being out of that situation with my two young men at the time, boys, was better than what I was dealing with at that time. And I just knew you... that I would, I would be able to do it. I, I don't know how, because at the time, my faith wasn't as strong as it is today. And I did not know how I was going to do it, but I just knew that I would find a way to do it. Well, did you have any, any guilt about having to raise the boys? Now you find yourself in this situation, especially with two young boys. Did you have any guilt about having to raise the boys as a single mother? The guilt wasn't about having to raise the boys. The guilt was with, you know, the voices in my head. You're a failure. You know, why couldn't you have made it work? Um, you're going to mess up these children's lives. What kind of life are you going to give them? Um, the dream of having the family, the father and mother in the home with the young men and the house and the white picket fence, all that was shattered. And that was where the guilt came in. Could I have done anything differently? What could I have done? What could I have changed along the way? And I, I struggled with that for a while. Wow. You know, Karen, there is a, you know, when I think about my mom, there is a toughness that my mom had. had. Matter of fact, I never, I can never remember ever seeing her cry until to the death of my sister. It was the first time I think I'd ever seen her cry. But I know many a time having raising myself and my two brothers, I know there were tough times. I know there were hard times. And it wasn't until I became uh, an adult that I realized that here my mom was, especially back in the in 60s and 70s and 80s, raising three young black men. You know, there was a certain amount of toughness that she had to have. I'm sure that toughness came from having to have to set expectations for us so that we wouldn't cross the line with her as well as having to deal with, there were certain perceptions, I think, especially back then, there were certain perceptions and stereotypes that were placed on women 
who had uh, who were raising kids alone, especially trying to raise young boys alone. Do you think that you had to build up that certain level of toughness? And can you relate to that level of toughness that you had to have, uh, when, especially when you're raising boys? Yes, I can relate. And as you're asking the question, I'm remembering an incident where things were really, really tough. You know, and let me just give you a little bit of background story of what it was like to raise these young men at the time. Um, There's five years difference in age between them. So that alone presents certain challenges. And they were in different schools and required different care at that time. One was in a, a, a junior high school and the other one in kindergarten. And there was a period in time where I had to get up very early, get them both dressed, drop them off in different locations to be picked up, to be taken to school, then get to work, then had someone else pick them up from where they were, take them someplace else to meet me when I finished work. And that was our daily routine. And I remember one morning as I'm driving to drop them off, my older child says to me, oh, there's a big sale at school today. I need money. And I, I, I literally in that moment just said, couldn't you have told me this before? You know, I don't have money on me all the time. Well, that's why you shouldn't have left daddy. That was the answer that I got. And in that moment, I remember pulling off the side of the road and lashed out at him saying, how dare you say something like that? I'm doing the best I can with the situation. And had he been around, you probably still wouldn't have gotten the money anyway. So, right. um, it, you know, there were moments when they would say things that really, really got to you, but you just had to just come back with a strong answer, keep it clean, and um, just let them understand that you're doing the best you can and this is a situation and you have a responsibility too. We're in this together. You let me know what you need in advance. It is my job to provide it regardless. So. Which, which is an interest, which brings me to an interesting conversation. You know, I got to tell you, as long as I can remember, it was just my mom, you know, just my mom and the boys. So my mom was always a single mother, which is, wasn't the case with, yourself and your sons. So how do you, you know, because I hear so many kids that are from single parent homes explain the the struggles that they had, you know, going through the, either their parents' separation or their parents' divorce and certain behaviors they, dis, they exhibited as a result of that, that separation. How did you explain and approach the conversation with your boys when you share with them that you would be the primary caregiver or you would be the one raising them? Um, very interesting question because I think I didn't have to have that conversation or I chose not to have that conversation until probably two or three months into the separation. Immediately after I separated, this is before the actual official divorce, I took my children to Disney World for 10 days. After Disney World, we went to spend some time with my sister who had other nieces and nephews living there with them at the time. So it was just a summer full of fun and games for them. So 
to be honest with you, I don't think that they realized what was happening in that moment. I think maybe about towards the end of the summer when my older one realized that I should be getting ready for school right now. There should be some back to school shopping going on. He heard the other kids talking about it. Then he said, um, when are we going home? And it was in that moment that I realized that I had to have a conversation with them to let them know oh, wow. that home was going to be different. Home is not where they thought it would have been and that we were going to live someplace else. And while they were having fun during the summertime, I was trying to figure out and make arrangements for where we would be. And thankfully, my mother stepped in. She actually renovated her home. So we had an apartment within her home. And then I said to them, we were going to go stay with grandma. We're not going to go back home. And surprisingly enough, they seemed to be okay with it. There were no tears. There were no crying. I think because I had always been their primary caregiver, even while we were married and in the home, I did have help from my in-laws. They were very instrumental in my children's life. But from a perspective of a mother and a father, they knew me. I was there for them. I took them to school. I got them ready. I took them back to school shopping. I did the grocery shopping. So it was always mom. And if it, you all, I was always there. Right. So the transition seemed to work. It was easy, easier than I anticipated it to be, to be honest with you. You know, I, I would think, Karen, that, you know, just looking at my mom raising us a raising boy, <laughs> I would think the tough part is that sitting you know early on establishing boundaries because i just think that there are certain behaviors that when you're raising young ladies uh that is exhibited and there are certain behaviors that when you're raising young men so the toughest part to me i would think about and i'm speaking from the standpoint of being a male but a female raising young men or raising boys to young men and i can tell you in my household the boundaries was my mom had zero tolerance for talking back at any and any level of disrespect, she did not tolerate it at all. What were some of the biggest or the bigger boundaries that you had to set for your sons? And how did you handle that? Oh, Lord. Um, fortunately for me, disrespect was not something that they did. I am not sure if they felt sorry for me, if they realized that there was no way I was able to go to handle it. So they didn't, <laughs> they, they never talked back. I thought they, they I, I know they spoke to each other. You know, they, they formed a coalition between themselves, but they really didn't they talk back to me. Um, they would, they would, they had, they had moments when, they would say something, not necessarily disrespectful, because I always had this um, a policy where they were free to speak their minds. Um, and I think that open dialogue, that open communication, that open door gave them a certain amount of respect. I never disrespected them. They never heard me speak negatively about anyone. I never spoke, you know, I never spoke bad about anyone in their presence. So they, they, that was not exposed to them. And respect was something that was 
very, very strongly upheld by my grand, my, by their grandmother, my mom, my mom's husband, who was also instrumental in their lives. He was always, you know, in his own way, trying to teach them right from wrong. And you shouldn't speak this way. You should always be this way. And, you know, they did, they just were never disrespectful. So we had to set boundaries with respect to what we required of them in terms of education. You had to go to school. Dropping out of school was not an option. You know, I had to go to work. Your responsibility was to go to school and get good grades. I had activities for them. They would often complain how tired they were and they didn't have time to do homework. My response was, I get tired too, but I still had to make sure you're fed. So anything they said, I had an answer for them. And in some ways they did have that like slight slick remark, but it wasn't disrespectful though. It was just them being boys. And I, we allowed them that latitude to a certain point. And we said, okay, that's your opinion. However, my rules, my home, this is what it is and you have to deal with it. And they would, they would comply, but for the most part, I think I was blessed to have the young men that I have. Well, let me say, <laughs> I, I, I wish I could have been raised up in your home. Because, because in, 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 and I think that is a big in Southern upbringings. You know, we were not, you know, we kind of kept our opinions to ourselves. <laughs> you know, so I, I never had to worry about, you know, if you, if you, if someone was interviewing me, interviewing me and question i probably would say i know i've never talked back because i knew the consequences of me talking back i probably wouldn't be here today to have this podcast with you mm -hmm. but but my mom was a very big disciplinarian and as i say as i got older i understood why she had to be so stern with us and um and i understand the older i got the more clear i was you know number one she had she was raising three african-american boys mm. the of us getting in trouble and the stereotypes that were placed upon us made it seem really possible that we would only go so far in life. So my mom was, was I'm sure, was dealt with, how do I, me by myself, how do I raise these three boys to make sure that they stay in line, to make sure I maintain a certain level of, of mistake, I mean, uh, a certain level of respect. Mm -hmm. And as I always call it, make sure I, I maintain <laughs> a healthy level of fear, that they have a healthy level of fear uh, uh, when it comes to them disobeying, you know, whatever I ask them to do. So, hey, Karen, what were some of the hardest times um, during the time that you were raising your boys and how did you overcome those times? The hardest times was dealing with their various activities you know, and trying to divide my time equally among them because they were doing different activities at the time. And one of the things I've always maintained with the absence of a strong African-American male role model in the home, I wanted them to be able to have that stern fear and discipline through their activities. My youngest played tennis, he played chess, he played basketball, he played soccer. My oldest played football, basketball. He also played chess, but he didn't play chess at the professional level as my younger one. So 
their activities varied. There were times when my younger one had to be in Portland, Oregon for a chess tournament or Nashville, Tennessee. My, young, my older one had a basketball tournament. He also traveled. He had to be in Boston. I remember one, one day, both boys needed to be in two states for different events on the same day. Thankfully, because of our job, I was able to get up early that morning, fly to D.C., drop my younger one because he was um, invited to become by his school as a national congressional young leader. So I had to take him to Washington, D.C. And then I had to get on a flight and fly to Boston with my older one because he had a, a basketball tournament at Brown University. So I dropped him off at Brown University and flew back to D.C. and stayed with my cousin because my younger one needed me closer to him. My older one could pretty much be on his own with a basketball coach at the time. That was my life. And there were times when I couldn't physically be there and I would ask my mom, I would ask my sister, I'd ask my girlfriend, I'd ask somebody to fill in, jump in with me. And it was a village. It really was a village. It was a village, though, of mostly women. So I did not necessarily, and I'll admit this openly, I wasn't of the fortitude that had that kind of stern, you know, tough exterior. My girlfriend did, though. So where I faltered, she jumped in. They were more scared of her than they were of me. So when, oh, really? when, I, needed, when I needed some little, uh, uh, um, a little reinforcement, I was like, I'm going to call Auntie Judith. <laughs> and they would, right. <laughs> I just needed to say Auntie Judith, and they would be like, they'd be on point. And that would put the fear that, in them. <laughs> that, was, that was just enough fear <laughs> to get them flying right and doing the right thing. So it was a village for me. And the challenges just had to deal with struggling, juggling the different places. I had to be also respectful of her time and her schedule. These are my children. They were not hers, but she was their aunt and very much a part of their lives and loved them as much as I did and, you know, gave up her time for them. But I also had to be respectful of that. But let me ask you a question. Was there ever any times that you were approached with the question by you, from your sons, where was your father? They wanted their dad to be there. They wanted, it was great having these females there, but hey, we want a male, male around us to help us with this. Did you ever get faced with that? I didn't, I can tell you, I, it was never the case with my mom because I knew she was all we had. So it wasn't like I, there was any other options. You know, there were mm -hmm. support systems in the neighborhood from other men and they were usually in the church because back during those times, everybody parented your kids. You know, so if, if there was another male in the community that saw me acting out, they would pick up the phone and call my mom. It was in the school, the principal knew my mom, he would call my mom. So did your boys ever approach you at any time and just have a desire to say, we want a male figure here, we want our dad, or any, or any other male figure? Well, they didn't have to because my stepfather was, he took on that role. Uh, he was at every game. When I was stuck at work, he was there. He would pick them up at school. Good. He would drop them off. And, but he's also Caucasian. So that also presented challenges because um, when he would pick up my younger one at school, his friends would say to them, because he called him grandpa, they'd say to him, right. um, how come your grandfather isn't black? And my son, mm -hmm. you know, I guess he got this from me. 
he would proudly answer and he says, well, he doesn't have to be black. He just needs to be old. And <laughs> to, be a to be a grandfather. And, you know, he had an answer for anything they threw at him. And um, so they did have a male role model in their lives. So for me to say that they didn't wouldn't be fair. They did have a male role model in their lives. We didn't always agree on our on how the boys were to be raised. Um, he loved them to the point of spoiling them rotten. We had literally about a five minute walk, not even five minutes. I'm exaggerating when I say five minutes, less than five minute walk from the complex where we lived to the gate where the school bus would pick up my oldest one to take him to school. This is when, you know, he was old enough to start going off on his own. He would drive him to the gate every morning. And I, oh. I am saying to myself, uh, he can walk. He has legs. He right. taught him to drive and then complained that he was stealing out the car. Well, what did you think a boy was going to do when you teach him to drive a car? He was going to take the car. So we often um, sort of fought over how the boys were to be raised. I wanted him to have a little more structure and a little more discipline. He thought that they were perfect kids. And in the grand scheme of things, they were. I didn't have any problems with them. I didn't have to worry about them getting into bad company, getting into trouble. Nothing outside of what's normal for young boys. So he thought that because they were so good, he could be equally as lenient with them. So we, this was really <laughs> we, we disagreed. Right. We definitely disagreed. So we had challenges within the home as to how they should be raised. I maintain they're my children, my rules. And he's like, well, they're under my roof. So I, what I say goes. And we had that kind of struggle back and forth. But overall, they were very, very uh, respectful in the long run. So, right. you know, they, they got what a latitude more, more than, more than most young boys got. What were some of your high moments in raising your boys? Their accomplishments. Um, they loved being, they were very competitive, extremely competitive. And they competed with each other. And that was actually fun to watch, believe it or not. Um, they competed over who got the best grades in school. They competed over who scored the most baskets in a game. They competed against who, were, who was more successful and who got more trophies in their sport. Than, and it was just fun to watch them compete and develop because they drew off each other's strength. So they had me, but they also had each other, which was probably one of the blessings in disguise that they did have each right. other and that they were five years apart. So my older one is very driven, very competitive, but also a lot more, I'm going to use the word loosey-goosey. You know, he wasn't as serious as my younger one. He was He's more playful. More and that's the one, that's, <laughs> that's Frankie. Yeah. And that's Frankie. My younger one was very cerebral, very intellectual, you know. Anything he did, he took it to the 10th degree. He had to be better at it. If there was a test and the score that you could get was 105, if he didn't get 105, he wasn't satisfied. He wasn't satisfied with just 100. He had, you know, he'd get 100, he'd get an A, and he would come home crying. I didn't get the extra credit. His first chess tournament, he lost, and he, he came to my office crying in tears. I thought something had happened to him. 
And I said, right. you know, you just lost a chess game. You, you, you're not hurt. You're not injured. And when he finally did win and got the first trophy, you'd have thought somebody gave him a million dollars. But that's just, those are some of the high points that I remember, just how competitive they were, how much they fed off each other. And they had my lust for traveling. They loved to travel with me and go to fun places and do fun things. And uh, those are just some of my high points that, uh, of my life with them. Seemed like there were a lot of, well, what were some of the most valuable hard lessons that you had to teach them? Hmm. To be kind and be, to be kind to themselves, to understand that there isn't anything deficient about them because you are a person or a child of a single parent and a single mother. You are not deficient. Um, I remember Frankie being interviewed for a basketball scholarship and it was, it was as though he was being told because he's tall and he was built, you know, he's definitely an athlete. And I had to correct him and say, you know, no, you're educated, you're smart. You just happen to know how to play basketball. I had to reverse the narrative for them and have Very and 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 sort of reshape their thinking. <laughs> if you could go back and change one thing, what would it be? One regret that I have, and I don't have a lot, was given how I have developed faithfully now, I wish I had done some of the upbringing that I had as a child growing up from a spiritual standpoint. Um, my mother-in-law was very, very spiritual. She read her Bible and that was, I'm going to say the only early exposure they've had from a spiritual standpoint to the word of God. And I thought as a mother, I could have done more to encourage that in them and to spend more time reading with them and doing some of that kind of spiritual development alongside with them instead of sort of handing that off to her because in my mind, you know, she was better at it anyway. So, and as long as they were getting it from somewhere, it, it didn't really matter. It didn't matter, <laughs> it who, didn't matter yeah. who, but I could have done that more with them and have them see me uh, also as that example uh, from a spiritual development. I think I, I, I know I could have done a better job there. I'm not going to live with regrets. You know, I've been told um, not to look through my rear view mirror because the windscreen is much bigger. So I don't focus on my past. I look to the future and whatever they got was enough to keep them out of trouble and help them to develop to be the young men that they are today. So it was enough. I could have done a better job doing it with them. You know, one of the things that I, one of the moments I'm most proud of with my mom is that when she had her, I want to say 60 or 62nd, I think it was 62nd birthday, we gave her a surprise party here in Washington, D.C. Uh, I had the opportunity to get up and speak directly to her. And I got a chance to just to share how I felt about her as a person, as a mother, and who, uh, who, how our relationship had grown. 
it was a moment that I will always remember. If I asked your boys, what could you have done differently? What do you think they would say? And I know we kind of touched on this before. Yeah. So what do you say? My boys thought that I didn't do enough for myself. I didn't spend enough time just for me. I lived my life for them and to some extent still do that today. You know, my very dear friend, she says, you know, I go completely overboard with overcompensating, making sure that you do everything for them. I love taking care of people. I think it's what I enjoy doing. I like seeing people happy. And I think that what I'm doing makes people happy. They think that I need to do some of that for myself. Some of the energy that I put into others, I need to put that into myself. You know, maybe they're Very right, but <laughs> I don't know if it's going to change much. <laughs> Very interesting answer. Hey, uh, what advice would you give a, a struggling single mother raising sons who have all the odds stacked against her? No access, no support, trying to do it on her own. Uh, what advice would you give that mother who's just about ready to give up? Um, you cannot do it on your own. You know, let's start there. Get help. And um, you're not a failure because you ask for help. Uh, I had my mother, I had my stepfather, I had my best friend, I had American, I had people at, at my company who stepped in as honorary aunties and, you know, the list goes on and on and on. Ask, get help. There is no shame in asking for help and just understand that you're doing the best you can with the knowledge you have. I've heard it from a pastor saying that don't expect a gallon for some a, a gallon of milk from someone who only has a pint to give. Wherever you can get the help, you get the help that you need, and it might be multiple sources, and that it is okay. Um, you're not a failure, and if you're not able to give of material things, give of your time. Make time in your day to spend with your children. That means more to them than all the toys you can get them, all the clothes you can any buy money, them. Any, Give them time your time. time. Give them your time. Yeah. Spend time with them because that's what they're going to remember when they get older. When they get older and they get over all the material things that they never had, they are going to remember that you were there with them. And it doesn't matter how, you know, and I know some mothers listening to this, and I get that because I've, I've, I've been raised in an environment in, in my mom time was restricted big. And I know some mothers would say, single mothers would say, I don't have the time to give. I'm working two, I'm working three jobs. But I would say, just make the little time that you have quality, quality time. time. Not always about the quantity. If you have an hour, make sure that hour is the best hour that you can give them. Because I get it that some so many mothers don't have the thing. The one thing that they don't have is time. But you can make the most out of the little time that you have. Hey, Karen, what? How would you want? How would you, sorry? How would you like your sons to remember you? What do you want your legacy to be with them? And it's such an interesting question for me, because me not having my mom, I know I worked so hard to keep her legacy alive, to keep her memory alive, because I want not only myself, but people who know her to remember her and the way that she lived versus the way that she died. Mm -hmm. So I, I focus on always now, and I didn't always do that, but I focus on now 
keeping her memory alive or keeping her alive. How would you want your sons to remember you and what would you want your legacy to be with them? Because I raised my children, I, I don't want to say by myself because that's not a fair assessment, but I was a single mother. I spent my time with children who were also of single parent or no parent. I would leave often to go work in orphanages. I've worked in orphanages in Haiti. I've worked in orphanages in Brazil. And in some way, I was paying it forward. I was doing for other children what they may not have had happen for them that I had for my sons. My sons had a family. They had a village. They had a network that they could tap into. So I was a single mother, but I was not alone. I wasn't left alone to raise these boys by myself. And it allowed me the opportunities to do a lot of these philanthropic work that I enjoyed doing, spending time with others, other children. And they know this. I would share stories with them. And there are times when we took them on vacation and we took them to villages with us to show them how privileged they were and that not everybody is the same, not all things are equal. Um, I remember once we took a cruise, my girlfriend, myself, we took them to Mexico, to um, a, a, a village south of, um, it was right off the Catalina Island, and we went down to the Baja Peninsula, and they got to see children that, you know, didn't look like them, didn't have what they had in terms of shoes on their feet, clothing, and I remember my little one pulling at my arm and saying to me, mom, you know, why does he look like that? And then you have to explain poverty to them. And it showed them that there are other children that are not as privileged as they are and led them to be humble. They, they, you know, they were kind. And the more I did that, the more they heard and the more they saw, I think it gave them a sense of, wow, you know, my mom is doing something for someone else. And I think that's the memory that they have of me, always doing something for someone else, always giving up myself, whether it be through orphanages, whether it be through voluntary work, um, you know, uh, in soup kitchens, uh, my uh, my one of their uh, their godmother actually works at a soup kitchen feeding homeless. Whatever it is, they saw me giving and they have a legacy of me giving to others that they have been a part of as well. Very good. Very good. What a way to end this. Uh, what a way to end this episode. I want to I want to ask you one last question um, and then we'll go to closing it out. Hey, you know, Karen, I've always wondered if my mom ever had a chance to exhale, you know, because as parents, we're always holding out, we're always holding our breath and praying that the life, that life works out for our children. And when I became an adult, I always tried to show and give my mom a little piece of happiness in hopes that she would be able to, to just relax and breathe. And I really hope that she did. So my last question for you is that, as a mother, have you started to exhale? <laughs> not yet. It's not time to exhale <laughs> yet. 
<laughs> still got a lot of work to do, you know. I, I still have a lot of work I, to do. Uh, I'll I exhale have... when I can. I can comfortably quit working and know that all my needs are met because my children have made it. <laughs> then I can exhale. I'm <laughs> not there good... yet. I'm not there yet. I'm on my way though, and they're gonna. They have. My oldest has said to me. Mom, we're going to make sure, and it's me and Auntie Judith, where he's going to make sure that we're taken care of and that we're set. And I'm going to hold him to that because I know he's a man of his word. Very good. Very good. You know, I, I Karen, and I have this book that I always close out each episode with. It's called If Only I Knew. It's by Lance Wubbles. And it's a gentle, gentle reminders to help you treasure the people in your life. And I'm going to read one of the reminders in here that resonate with me. And I'm going to toss it over to you. And I'm going to ask you to finish the statement of, if only I knew. If only I knew that real happiness is a state of mind and that there's no substitute for a good attitude, I would have been more thankful for what I had and the chance to live and work and to love. So, Karenette, finish this statement for me. If only I knew. If only I knew that there wouldn't be a trophy when these boys are all grown to become men, I would have been more forgiving to myself. I did the best I could with the knowledge and experience that I had. And as long as my intentions were pure, then I did okay. They're, not, they're still alive. Nobody died through this process. So... <laughs> All is well. What a beautiful way to end this episode. And Karenette, thank you so much for agreeing to come on here and speak with me and share your experience raising your young men. My friends, I will catch up with you on the next episode of Unspoken Matters. And remember, there are some matters in life that should never go unspoken. So speak up and we're out of here.